if you look down from like an aerial view and you look down in an area that's been deforested, you can see that habitat has been re removed. And if you turn to the ocean, if the ocean is becoming breathless or deoxygenated, it means that that's a habitat that kind of disappeared as well, or at least it's, sh it's shrunk. You know, already we're seeing fish species like changing in distribution and composition, right, more towards the poles, uh, which might le leave a huge food security issue. I mean, as biomass is lost around the equator. These are things that we have to be very flexible in our management model. So we can't say this is the way we've always been doing things. We have to build in that a kind of uncertainty. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on Protecting Blue Nature. I'm your host, Ineri Garg, joining you from Bamfield, BC, on the traditional territory of the Huayat First Nations, one of the Manuel's treaty nations. At Impact 5, the world will come together to inform, inspire, and act on protecting the ocean. And one of the rallying campaigns bringing nations together over the UN Ocean Decade is the 30 by 30 campaign, calling on the world to protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. But how does one actually build a global network of marine protected areas? And are all marine protected areas created equally? Our guest today is Mina Epps, Director of the Ocean Team at the International Union for Conservation of Nature, or the IUCN. She is a global ocean leader with decades of experience in international marine research and policy. We're excited to dive right in today to hear about the diversity of work she engages in through the IUCN and what lessons we can learn to successfully build a global marine protected area network that is adaptable, collaborative, and equitable. Protecting Blue Nature is a podcast from Impact 5, the fifth international marine protected area congress taking place in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, from the 3rd to the 9th of February, 2023. I'm working alongside Isabel Grock to explore the themes and streams of Impact 5 through this podcast. Impact 5 will be jointly hosted by the host First Nations, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, together with the province of British Columbia, the Government of Canada, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, and the International Union for Conservation of Nature. We are grateful to the host First Nations for welcoming us into their traditional unceded territories for this Congress. Thanks for joining us, Mina. Can you start by telling us about your journey towards becoming a global ocean leader with the IUCN? I think my interest really, because I, I did spend my summers, a uh, summer holiday in California, and um, we used to go down to kind of the tide pools uh, off the coast of La Jolla. And I was just fascinated by, you know, the, what was left behind in these tide pools. And, you know, so people think that, you know, if you're a marine biologist, then you're really fascinated by, you know, the megafauna. But like, I'm really attached to, you know, my invertebrates. So yeah, I think that's always, you know, fascinated and people have a very different relationship to the ocean. Um, but, you know, it's very, very soothing and it just always energized me just being close to the ocean and kind of strange combination between soothing and energizing. Um, yeah, so I started, ended up studying marine biology actually, and that's um, um, how I did that. But then, you know, found, found myself also doing some kind of uh, 
initial jobs or research assistant and feeling being stuck in a basement in a lab somewhere uh, wasn't really my thing. And I really enjoyed people and wanted to make sure that whatever you do, like scientific, is just not staring down the microscope, but, you know, plankton or whatever, but it's really looking how can it be applied and kind of in the bigger picture and how does it fit together? So that's a little bit how I started kind of venturing out and looking more kind of interdisciplinary uh, aspects of it. And then found myself um, being mainly for whether where I was like the only biologist, whether it was like European Commission or, you know, WTO. And even when you go to the kind of UNEP and the environment program, um, there was still also a lot of uh, lawyers, economists, et cetera, depending on, you know, which, which part um, of an organization. So I think I always brought that um, with me. So it's, it looks, looking back, looked like it was a red thread um, of, you know, very planned and, uh, you know, uh, conscious decisions. But uh, I would say, no, it was totally, you know, opportunistic jumping on one thing to the other. And, uh, but the red thread would always kind of marine and, and fisheries uh, side of side of things. So basically going from kind of policy work uh, in Geneva to like field work in Madagascar and so on. So it's funny how often that happens where it's like, oh yes, first I did this and then I did this, but really all of this builds such an interesting experience. So what is the role of the IUCN. Yeah, so it's um, was really great. I joined IUCN as a, as a young professional. Again, it was also part of like a program to uh, get kind of young professionals into whether it's the World Bank or UN agency, etc. And I was just really lucky that it was an international intergovernmental organization like IUCN that really focused on, you know, conservation uh, and marine issues. So I that's how I ended up joining IUCN. And um, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's really, um, a unique organization, I would say, because it really has kind of a global reach, but also work all the way kind of to field level, but also engage at the highest level of, of, um, environmental, environmental governance. So for example, IUCN has, um, a seat as an observer, as a permanent observer at the UN General Assembly and a lot of these different kind of conventions. I think that's kind of unique to to have that seat, uh, but also and and it's a it's a science based organization. So we have, it's it's a membership union, and really what builds up the IUCN it's it's kind of members and membership base, um, and every four years. Those members come together for the World Conservation Congress and it's the General Assembly. So it's really the, you know, the highest, the members are really the highest part of decision making uh, within IUCN. So it's everything from like 200 state agency members, about 1,700 civil society organizations. So that could be anything from the bingo. So the big international NGOs, uh, like Conservation International, TNC, WWF, etc. to um, down to kind of smaller, um, smaller environmental NGOs, uh, indigenous people organization, because that's also a very big focus is really looking at indigenous people leadership in conservation. So we have about 17,000 experts connected to us uh, in, that are housed in like seven different commissions. So it could be, uh, you know, um, World Commission on in International Environmental Law. Uh, it could be the World uh, Commission on Protected Areas. And also now the newest one is um, the Climate Crisis Commission. So gathering also um climate change expert, whether it's on science or policy or finance. So it's really, I think that kind of sums it up. It's really kind of the power union. I mean, I, mean, I would say that that kind of global re reach and the, um, yeah, the impartiality to get independent advice. And that's how it was designed when it was established in like 1948 to really be a way to kind of 
to report back to society on, on the science, etc. So, uh, yeah, that's it. A, that's kind of IUCN in a nutshell, but uh, it's it's uh, quite unique. That's really neat. I didn't know that there was that level of detail and global participation with the IUCN. Um, so you said there's a new working group, the or not working group, the climate change group. Oh, it was a commission. Yeah, the commission, oh, commission. On, on climate change. It was just an, an example of um, the different different types of commissions. And within that, you have a lot of specialized groups, right? Subgroups. So you can have one just on seahorses or, you know, gives gives you an idea of kind of the, the very kind of specific or, you know, I shouldn't call it geeky or nerdy, but like, you know, you can really get into a subspace group. Nerdy is the best. It's just passion. <laughs> Definitely. So yeah, I think that's a good, good way to describe it. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a house full, full of passionate people um, that really, you know, want to have an impact in their own way, <laughs> in their own geeky way. And is there a focus on oceans specifically within that commission? No, I think I think it will be. I mean, I think it's new, but I think in general, I mean, the ocean and climate change and biodiversity nexus is really, really, I would say it's moved up, um, you know, both on the political, but also in the public awareness in terms of the importance of the ocean, the importance of the ocean for mitigating and adapting to climate change. Um, as well as, you know, the importance to really, you know, our whole planetary stability, which is kind of key though. So the important role of the ocean uh, has really been, uh, I think, much more recognized. And we realize that, you know, we need to restore ocean health, um, you know, urgently. Yeah. Ocean health is planetary health. Absolutely. And so what does your team do in the ocean division at the IUCN? So we work on both ocean and climate change in terms of um, what are the the, the, the threats uh, to the ecosystem, but also looking at kind of mitima- mitigating it. So and, and the important role of marine and, and, and coastal ecosystem in mitigating and adapting to climate change. I think that's uh, one really big area, but it's it's quite broad, right? So we look at going kind of the, the science and policy interface and linking it back to, I was talking about in terms of IUCN's kind of reach globally, going from local to global. So we have projects on the ground and then, you know, which ultimately needs to be scaled up. And you always say, by the end of the day, you need to kind of real boots on the ground. So we do, we also have kind of re-granting mechanisms. So you probably heard uh, talking about nature-based solutions. So nature-based solutions. It's not nature-based solutions for climate change or nature-based solution for biodiversity. Um, It's really an inclusive and holistic approach in how you actually tackle environmental and social challenges that we have today. And and I think we also need to rethink and how we're doing conservation uh, and, you know, because it's dependent on on funding, whether it's public funding or private funding. But it's again, thinking about how can you make environmental like conservation projects, uh, which we know so well how to do, but how can we make them economically viable or, you know, so they can actually be become bankable projects and, and, and eventually investable. And then we have a good winning model and that we can help us move towards, you know, nature positive, you know, economies and societies. So I think that's a really good tool. And IUCM, for example, is also a global standard setter. So um, we actually put out in 2020, the first global standard for nature-based solutions that can, you know, be used as a benchmark and to guide. The important thing is like, once you get it right, it's quite a challenge. I mean, you can make it successful um, 
conservation project, or you can have a really good business idea that, uh, but in the end, yeah, you're looking at not harming the environment or mitigating it negative impact, but how can you actually generate biodiversity positive, you know, interventions uh, that are commercially viable? So I think for that, I would say that if you then think, what does the ocean do or what do we do as a program? We do all of that, but like I just put the little word blue in front. So we do blue nature-based solutions. So that's kind of in the marine and ocean space. Um, same thing with finance. It's like blue finance. Uh, it's blue carbon. Uh, so so that's the kind of little magic word. Uh, and so but but again, it's 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 quite broad, and um, we have a big program on plastic, um, basically measuring uh, leakage and how do you tackle it? What is the source? Where does it come from? And there again, we work with kind of um, circular economy, uh, local intervention on on small island development state, but also working with national policy. So as an example, it's changed uh, policy in like seventeen different countries, uh, but also changed law in five countries. So. That would be, I think, a quite a successful model where you can do local intervention and also having policy influence. It sounds like for such diverse problems, you're approaching diverse solutions here and integrating economics, social sciences, natural sciences for nature-based solutions. Could you give an example of how that capacity is built on the ground or in the water? Yeah. So if you start again from the fact like, okay, what is best practices? I mean, that obviously comes from a lot of experience and trial and error. And IUCN puts out global standards to, you know, what is, um, you know, the definition of what is the marine protected areas. Uh, IUCN has kind of a global definition with different categories uh, related to the level of protection and what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, so a lot of people, for example, think that, you know, marine protected areas, there are kind of strictly no go, no take zones, uh, et cetera, but there's different levels of it. But of course, if you are tackling this from the, the conservation point of view in terms of uh, enhancing and, you know, protecting biodiversity, then, you know, that strict protection is needed and will have spillover uh, effects. But I think to your point, you have to look at it kind of in a, you know, a holistic way in terms of, how do we how do we kind of balance between you know the um, biodiversity protection, but also uh, addressing jobs, livelihoods, etc. Um, and there are several examples and models, especially if you look at coastal areas, because there's always a competition for um, you know space. Ultimately, it's what it comes down to, and whether you want to use it for tourism or it could be infrastructure. So that's why you need to work on so many different fronts. You might need to work with blue green infrastructure in, in coastal areas. Um, so, so I think that's kind of also we have to look at it in an integrated way that how can you achieve these kind of uh, objectives in a holistic way? And that's why I mentioned the nature-based solutions, but marine protected area can also be there. So you could have obviously combined with tourism activity as long as it's managed, et cetera. There's, there's a lot to be done, but of course, when it comes down to its implementation on the ground, what is key is not just to write a book and say, hey, this is what good looks like. You know, you need quite a lot of resources to effectively manage it. And, you know, uh, so you can't just, you know, cross it out on the map and say, hey, this is a marine protected area. Um, you have to make sure that, you know, it's properly enforced and, you know, there is compliance. And we hear all the time that, you know, there are illegal fishing activities going on, even within the marine protected areas. 
So how do you stop that? Even if you can see it and trace it on the, on a satellite, you know, whose responsibility is it to attack that and how do you enforce it? So I think when it comes down to these protection and especially if you look at the high seas and, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue. How do you govern it? How do you make sure um, that whatever then rules and regulations you put in place, that they are, they are complied with? Speaking of the high seas and the challenges with managing that, that area, could you tell us about the High Seas Treaty and your experience being in New York recently negotiating for that? So IUCN is an, is an observer, as I said before, to many, many of these different kind of treaties uh, and negotiations and um, different uh, COPs as well, which is a conference of parties. Um, for what's happening now, it's, 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 it's really quite exciting times in the sense that even though there was a the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, which was established more than like 40, 40, almost 40 years ago. It's still, this is something that's being negotiated. It's, uh, it's an internationally legally binding treaty uh, to really to protect the life in the ocean. We, everybody's waiting to kind of see this, this come through because at the moment um, there is no kind of legal institutional framework or even a a whole uh, governance uh, aspect to kind of protecting the ocean. So even the legal landscape is quite fragmented, etc. So it's actually really a challenge, like how would you go about establishing a marine protected area? So at the moment, when you talk about, hey, we want to have at least 30% um, of the ocean protected through marine protected area, for example, how do you, um, this is then basically done at, at the national level, which means it's kind of a country's economic exclusive zone, uh, whereas the high seas, it's like, well, it's kind of no more, it's a little bit like the Wild West, like who decides um, and what would be the mechanism to establish a marine protected area? Who would have the authority to designate it? And, you know, well, first of all, nominate it, designate it. And, you know, and then there's obviously the whole range of the scientific assessments and inputs that are needed to actually, uh, to designing it and also kind of implementing it and managing it. And I think that only in 2018 is when they actually started having like rounds of negotiations. So it was um, supposed to be four rounds. Um, and then it was kind of unfortunately put at home at halt uh, because of the pandemic. So a lot of really important, uh, whether treaties or agreements that needed to be made, um, you know, through multilateral like, kind of negotiation didn't happen. It just came to stop. And, and I think it's, it's also an I issue that it didn't happen. It's just still because, you know, all these kind of builds up, but it, you have a certain momentum and it will still, and some and international meetings went ahead like virtually, but it's really difficult to do kind of diplomacy and diplomatic work, uh, virtually, uh, you kind of need to be there, be in the corridors, et cetera. The fourth and final session uh, was in New York in March. And unfortunately, they did after two and a half uh, years of kind of no negotiation. I don't think people were too optimistic that they would conclude, but still hopeful because that's kind of the last thing that we kind of give up is, is our hope, right? Um, so the fifth round uh, happened now in New York in August. Um, yeah, and it was it was interesting vibe, actually, because some came into the room with really like stubborn optimism, like, yes, you know, we're going to seal it to, to kind of under any circumstances. And there's been a lot of kind of political uh, commitment and pressure saying, you know, here's a high ambition coalition. These are all the countries that have a high ambition for the BBNJ. Uh, everybody's calling for let's have this urgently adopted before the end of 2022. 
this is the year of the ocean. Uh, so that pressure, but on the other hand, you know, this is treaty, you have to live it for a very long time. Uh, and it's kind of the one of the last kind of um, like unrated spaces um, on our planet. So it's really important because it's not easy to go back and amend it. So, you know, it was suspended uh, uh, just before midnight uh, on the Friday and um, uh, waiting for it to resume, not in a new round, but I think what's really key to happen now is really to kind of focus on what are the polarized issues? How can you unlock them? And I think I think a lot of progress, I, I'm still optimistic because I think a lot of progress was made uh more in the more progress in those those two weeks than in many many years um kind of bringing the different states together so maybe a little bit more time was needed and i guess a little bit of flexibility would be a good ingredient to throw in there as well funny you should say that that's something i've been curious about with treaties or marine plans as we are continuing to monitor and negotiate how is flexibility built into those kind of agreements? I think there is a common understanding that, you know, in terms of like, okay, we want to have this treaty. I mean, that's a good starting point. And I recently, uh, you know, was talking to this evolutionary psychologist and basically understanding different personalities and so on and where you are is like going from right to wrong to kind of then negotiate and then eventually the kind of different steps and reaching a, an agreement. And it's quite interesting. The main thing is that, you know, we've we got to be got to have that common vision, right? We have to be visionaries. So how do we look at managing the global ocean as a shared common? Uh, what are the key principles of ethic? It has to be principles of equity, informed maybe decision making or, you know, uh, along those lines uh, and also look at accountability. And then, you know, you have to be bold. So you have to kind of set, you know, ambitious goals and targets. And that's, what you, you know, they have to agree on those as well. And that's what we need for to secure ocean health. But then the key is, is afterwards, once you have an agreement, um, and that you also have to make sure that, you know, it's, it's pragmatic in terms of like, what kind of systems or strategies or, you know, it has to be a collaborative process. Um, so starting with identifying those, those common interests, and how do you build from that? So I would say bold, visionary and pragmatic would be uh, what we need to, um, yeah, to manage the, the challenges that the ocean is facing and ultimately us as, as human beings. So even though there wasn't a final agreement this August, what are the next steps in that process? And what do you want to see more of going forward? Well, obviously going forward, uh, there will allocate a bit more time. So um, that's that's one tick, uh, I think. And the other hand is, is the flexibility. And I think multilateralism is key. It's, it's, it's never been more important what it is today. So I think, um, you know, I think there have been a certain kind of change kind of in mindsets and certainly a willingness. Um, and but it has to be, you know, fair and equitable. It has to be, again, based on principles of equity and just for to, to go along. So I think a, a key thing that is, is kind of an obstacle is, is when you look at the ocean as, as a, a, you know, human, you know, it's, it's common heritage of humankind and all the resources there belongs to all of us. So how do, what's, what, what, what are the conditions for accessing those and sharing of the benefits? So, um, that is, a key um, issue that that still uh, needs to be a bit more flexible, and I think a lot of it could also be helped in general. Uh, it's supposed to be an implementing agreement, so 
what what can be done is is you need you need to have um, mobilized resources like financial resources. So if if you are going to uh, establish uh, marine protected areas or any other uh, effective uh, conservation measures um, in the high seas. Not only do you have to have the, the kind of legal institutional conditions to do so, you also need, um, it needs to be financed. Somebody needs to pay for that scientific information or the data needs to be collected. So I think one thing that, you know, would be needed to make it happen. I think obviously if some real money would put, was put on the table, I think that could unlock a lot and, and you know, that could mean progress. Well, first of all, really hopeful uh, and encouraging that that's being discussed at these high level discussions, but also challenging when it comes to on the ground. I wanted to come back to, um, you talked about blue finance. I'm curious how equity is brought into the conversation uh, with blue finance of, you know, looking for all these really cool, unique solutions, but is it just is it just, uh, you know, global North countries being like, I have this great idea, I'm going to implement it in your nation or, or is it different than that? Well, there is a growing concept called kind of um, blue growth and, and blue justice. So I think that's a kind of a, that kind of concept as well. Like, you know, it's, it's like, what, what do we mean when we're talking about the blue economy and all its potentials? Um, and I think blue economy, for example, it means very different things to, to different people and different nations, whether it's a, a developed or a developing countries. So I think that's kind of a, a definition that's, that varies. And I think that internationally, you have to agree on like, what are the, you know, uh, key principles for sustainable or, you know, responsible investments, just like you can have responsible sourcing or, uh, you know, um, it's, it's, it's fair and equity. So th those kind of international principles and guidelines are there and they're emerging and being applied also to kind of new sectors. So those guiding principles, you know, they're there, but, you know, it could be different scales. So you can talk about blue economy being a very small scale aquaculture, um, the kind of family owned business to kind of a, and a big offshore or maritime industry. So it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite diverse. And I think it's important that we have a common definition of what, what, what it means or what counts for, for blue economy and ways to do it. Um, but I still think like when we go back to think about, you know, protecting the ocean and why are we protecting it? It's, it's part of our, you know, planetary stability. We can't live without the ocean. But in the end of the day, so the discussion has really evolved as we are realizing that we need to protect much, much more. Um, how are we going to effectively manage and like and implement those um, marine protected areas? Uh, there's a lot of new technology emerging. Uh, but maybe not everybody has access to that technology. Um, sometimes you're relying on whatever coast guards and maybe that capacity varies from different countries all over the world. What does the kind of labor market work for, looks like for, for marine protected areas managers? Uh, so these things are changing like all the time. The bottom line is that we need to finance this. We need to have uh, sufficient resources to implement them. And if you don't have that, I mean, you know, there's no, we can set any target we want. <laughs> they need to, they need to be implemented and then resources needs to be available. Uh, but also to look at it from a, um, you know, innovative finance. So it's not just like when we pay, but also looking at what are the potential revenue streams that are sustainable, of course, and matching those. So in terms of actually growing this global network, then how do we incentivize folks to engage and to put forward the resources? 
what's been working many, many years is really to demonstrate what are the the benefits of marine protected areas. You know, you know, how does that translate into an economic value? So I think the case has been made already that, you know, uh, MPAs have multiple benefits, whether it's for like an ecosystem level, it could also be, you know, further um, in terms of kind of uh, livelihood, societal benefits, etc. Um, or as we meant, as we talked about mitigating uh, or adapting to climate change. So it has a, a broad range of different kind of benefits to, to society and, and humans as a whole. So that kind of case has been done, but now it's really looking at, you said, the financial kind of mechanisms and how to do that. And you can have engagement at different levels, but I think the main thing is that you have stakeholder participation. And in terms of establishing marine protected areas, I mean, everything from nomination and going forward, IUCN has a, a global standard for kind of best practice of um, marine protected areas, or it's it can be terrestrial as well. It's called the green list. And it's supposed to kind of incentivize and reward good practices. So it goes everything from kind of nominating, uh, so you can, you can be, um, um, you can be certified, you can be a candidate and it's basically a benchmarking tool, but you also, it's facilitative. So you actually build your capacity and it's really embedded in the kind of local expertise on where it's being implemented. It really looks at everything from design, but also really the inclusive governance. So it's not just talking about stakeholders, but also rights holders, uh, have the right stakeholders and rights will have been in informed and, you know, how are they involved? So that's kind of site specific, but then you can go to multiple sites. And as we specifically, if we look at the ocean, it's, it's a huge ocean. And we already talked about the high seas, which is like two thirds of the ocean, you know, but it's all connected. So that's why we always say ocean singular, right? Because it's one ocean, it's, it's, everything is connected. And we also have, you know, a lot of migratory species and, you know, they move uh, within, between, uh, across, you know, borders or even in areas beyond national jurisdiction, beyond borders, uh, and also vertical migrations, right? So you often think of the ocean space as like, you know, from looking at it in terms of a spatial like airways, but not so much as a kind of a three-dimensional space. So I, I think that the importance here is really to have um, a, their, their network. And that also comes back again to why um, multilateralism and, you know, international cooperation is so important. So you need to, um, an area, for example, that could be a migratory route, you need to create the kind of blue corridor between two different nations. Um, so I think, um, you know, we need a lot of collaboration and, and coherence to kind of um, advance that to make sure that we can have, you know, conservation connectivity. And what do you think is the importance of Impact 5 in building that network and enhancing collaboration? Yeah, I think Impact, uh, which is the kind of International Marine Protected Area Congress, is a really important uh, forum and it's kind of evolved over time. So it's IUCN co-hosted uh, with a, a government or a subnational government. And this fifth meeting uh, it would be, it will be hosted by Canada. So it'll be held in Vancouver. And I think it's, it's, it was set up and designed really to be um, a venue or Congress for practitioners. So MPA practitioners that can come and uh, exchange and share information, et cetera, and best practices and, and learn from each other. So also looking at kind of cross-regional, um, you know, learning opportunities um, and the sharing. I think it's evolved and it's, it's this, this time it will have, um, it will be held after uh, the Convention of Biological Diversity when they actually are setting the new goals post-2020. So 
there were the targets that were set and now we need to go post uh, beyond 2020 and set a new uh, global biodiversity framework. Um, which will be looking at protecting our 30% of our planet, whether it's the terrestrial or, or marine. So this would be a really crucial moment would be in Montreal in, in December. And after that, I kind of see impact as, as, as a kind of a place where you can actually build a roadmap for how you're going to implement uh, uh, achieving 30% protection. Uh, at least. So I think it's key. And then I think what's new for this time is really what we've been talking about here today is, is, is finance. If you look at some of the early ones that we're talking about conservation and practice, but now it's also but much more kind of practitioners, but like policy, uh, marine protected area agencies, um, but also bringing in businesses and industries. And uh, I think the focus will also be um, bringing in leaders to have that kind of higher level commitment to look at um, Indigenous peoples, organizations, leadership in conservation, but also conservation finance, so the blue finance we're talking about, and as well as kind of industry's role. So we can't be operating in silos saying this is a marine conservation community and these are the, you know, this is industry. Um, so it kind of bringing those also a bit closer together. So I, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it will be a very interesting mix of different stakeholders uh, that will need to have to work together. So. Looking forward to a lot of exchanges and, and collaboration. I like that you touched on biodiversity convention. And I've my association in the past at the IUCN is the red list. And you touched on the green list. So how do we incentivize folks to engage in best practices? Um, do you think that one day there will be an IUCN blue list? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the green list is also for the marine space, right? Um, you know, and some of them can be, you know, in coastal areas is both land and sea. So I don't know if that makes a Torcos, but yeah, I mean, as I said, we welcome, you know, the whole rainbow as long as it's, um, you know, has those intended uh, effect. You know, ocean is, it's such a dynamic uh, environment. The ocean is super dynamic. So we need dynamic uh, management models. And we need to see, you know, what do we need to create in that space? Do we need to have mobile MPAs that move <laughs> with this migrant in these blue corridors? Um, but they certainly need to be climate smart. And I think what whatever we do when we talk about future proofing, this is really difficult to anticipate, you know, what would the different kind of demand or what scenarios would look like in the future. So we have to incorporate a lot of flexibility. But I think it's, it's you know, it really to make sure that also you think about the the three-dimensional space, making sure that it's climate proof. Um, so it's, 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 it's different. As I said, these tools are kind of, you know, looking at the spatial dimensions from a kind of surface area, but it's, it's really kind of vertical because you can have different ecosystems kind of vertically. There's lots of consideration. I think in general is really, uh, the climate change multi-stressors because we have really, really uh, tempered with the chemistry uh, in our ocean. It's becoming, you know, warmer, more sour, and, you know, <laughs> we don't want it to become breathless too, whereas we have seen the, you know, <laughs> the deoxygenation happening in the open ocean as well as kind of in areas where there's been a lot of eutrophication in coastal areas. And I think, again, it's always been a little bit like ah, out of sight, out of mind, um, and also more difficult to relate to. So, other than, of course, it can have cultural value, recreational or sentimental, and it's it could be empowering. But I don't think we realize to what extent we have uh, experimented with the chemistry of the ocean to reaching a kind of a threshold. So, because on land, for example, if you if you look 
down from like an aerial view and you look down in an area that's been deforested, you can see that habitat has been re- removed. Then if you turn to the ocean, if the ocean is becoming uh, breathless or uh, oxygen, I mean, deoxygenated, it, it means that that ha- that that's a habitat that's kind of disappeared as well, or at least it's, sh- it's shrunk. And we're seeing that where, um, you know, already we're seeing um, fish species like changing in distribution and composition. Um, and I get more towards the, the, the poles, uh, which might leave, leave a huge um, food security issue. I mean, as biomass is lost around the equator. These, these are things that we have to be very flexible in our management model. So we can't say this is the way we've always been doing things. We have to build in that a kind of uncertainty and rapid change. And I think it's, it's happening much faster um, than we think. So um, if certain like you know, important commercial species like our tuna uh, fish. So, you know, there are fast swimmers and have high metabolism and they need oxygen rich waters. And if, if it doesn't exist, they have to move to where they can live. How can listeners get involved or people who are gearing up for Impact 5, how can they get involved and be engaged right now? I would say Impact is really a place where you, you should come as well with an open mind uh, and being able to to learn uh, and listen and take it in. And I think if we if we are successful in giving that, getting that kind of mixed audience and group together that I um, was hoping for and described earlier, where you have industry and you have uh, policy, high level visual artists, I hope as well. Uh, and, um, you know, I think then, then it could be a really good mix and, um, you know, different level of a kind of understanding. And I think obviously, you know, we need to put also the pressure to make sure that, you know, the global biodiversity framework that comes out of uh, Montreal in December, uh, really kind of setting the conditions of paving the way for us to take it forward. So, you know, this, the impact would be more how, um, so I would say if you're coming to impact, come with, you know, Bring your best ideas, <laughs> yeah, you know, your best energy and openness. And um, yeah, we should just take it from there. And I'm sure something really fruitful will come out of it. Absolutely. And there will be a big uh, early career ocean professional attendance there, it sounds like, and that's growing. So as somebody who's had such a diverse career, mm-hmm. do you have any parting words of wisdom for that audience. Oh, that's great. Oh, thank you so much for that that question. Uh, I think it's really key and we're seeing more and more kind of promotion of kind of youth representation, etc. Um, but I'm also mindful like it's not just, okay, you represent youth by itself. I mean, you're, you're representing maybe a young professional in the marine space and your voice counts just as much. I'm really also always trying to kind of um, focus much more on kind of intergenerational. So great. If you get if you get, if you get the young professionals and basically youth and they have the airs of the senior leaders or whatever, it's not just kind of, okay, here, get my message across, uh, or any of the kind of blame gaming, but it's more kind of, um, you know, the kind of cross fertilization. So you can have someone that has, uh, a lot of experience, uh, and has, you know, been doing this for decades. And so, so it's kind of meeting both ways, but quite often as somebody has, uh, I don't know, decades of experience can look and say, Oh my God, it's so naive. What are trying to do that? Oh, we try that. We failed. So I think the main thing is really that how can you mix different kind of levels of experience and outlooks and capitalize on the energy that 
the youth has, because in the end it's, it's, you know, <laughs> they're going to be here longer than, than the older generation. So I think it's, it's that, um, cross fertilization in terms of intergenerational. So, and, and I think more importantly, it's not just to say, oh, here's, here's a segment of youth, but really have it integrated. And I think that's something that we really focused on for this impact to make sure that uh, it's just not an add on to the conference. It's really throughout and to make sure that, you know, keynote speakers are also youth, et cetera. And is there anything else you wanted to add before we end today that we haven't gotten to around building this global marine protected area network? No, I, I try to avoid not to talk too much of, about fish because I was getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let you go get some food. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed on protecting blue nature, please visit www.impact5.ca or follow us on social media at Impact5 Canada. That's I-M-P-A-C-5 Canada. If you are inspired by this conversation today, consider registering to attend Impact5 next February in Vancouver, Canada. And check out the other episodes of Protecting Blue Nature wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please see the show notes for this episode's transcript available in both French and English, as well as more resources on this topic.